Contraception was the subject of intense controversy in 20th century Ireland. Banned in 1935 and stigmatised by the Catholic Church, it was the focus of some of the most polarised debates in the history of the state. A new book, Contraception and Modern Ireland, a Social History, is the first comprehensive, dedicated history of contraception in Ireland from the establishment of the Irish Free State in 1922 right up to the 1990s. It draws on the experiences of Irish citizens through a wide range of archival sources, but also of oral history. The author is Dr Laura Kelly, Senior Lecturer in the History of Health and Medicine at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Laura, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks very much for having me, Miles. Now, let's go back to the 1920s when the state began to place restrictions, not so much on contraception, but on information about uh, contraception with uh, through something called the elegantly titled Evil Literature Committee, established in 1926. Yeah, exactly, Miles. I know it's it's a great title. Um, so, yeah, 1926, the Committee on Evil Literature meets and really they're kind of discussing obscene literature that's circulating in Ireland in the 1920s. And the committee finds out that British birth control propaganda was widely available um, in Ireland at this point in time, particularly in Dublin. So, for example, you could get some of Mary Stopes' booklets in Kearney's bookshop um, in Dublin and also Eason's and Hannah's bookshops in Dublin also have publications on birth control and some advertising materials which were also submitted to the Committee on Evil Literature showed that individuals could obtain contraceptive devices by mail order as well. So really, the Committee on Evil Literature decided to ban any of this kind of indecent or obscene um, literature. And really what this means then is that the law that comes in in 1929, the Censorship of Publications Act, means that a wide range of books and publications could be banned. So not just material on contraception, but even texts that gave very basic information about fertility. Now, you mentioned Mary Stopes, obviously founder of the first birth control clinic in uh, in Britain. In the book, you quote a letter from a 28-year-old Limerick woman who had six children. She wrote to Stopes saying, the thought of having any more children would drive me mad. The, the, the book is full of that kind of, of correspondence, that kind of memoir. But tell us a bit about how Mary Stopes responded then to the banning of her publications by the censorship board. Yeah, so um, under the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act, um, as I was saying, all of Mary Stopes' publications were banned. So she was um, very, she was really a very prominent birth control um, campaigner in Britain at the time. Um, but she also published a book in 1931 called Radiant Motherhood. And this was basically giving advice to pregnant women um, about the whole experience of pregnancy um, to ensure that they, you know, had, had a positive and healthy experience. And she wrote to the Irish Censorship Board in 1931 to complain that this book had been banned on the grounds of advocating unnatural methods of contraception. But she said that this was unfair because it was really just giving advice to pregnant women about um, the experience of pregnancy. So we don't know what actually happened in this case because there's no kind of detailed reply to her letter. But um, I think her request basically had no effect um, because in 1936, you see a list of books prohibited in the Irish Free State and all of her publications um, are included in that. But at the same time, there definitely were people in Ireland um, who were sympathetic to Mary Stopes' aims. In the late 1920s, I came across some correspondence 
between Stopes and the owner of a bookshop and a newsagent in Dublin. And he was kind of keeping her informed about what was happening with the Commission on Evil Literature and the kind of developments in Ireland. And also in the late 1930s, I came across a letter from an Irish woman who wrote to Stopes asking if she could meet with her because she was interested in setting up a similar clinic in Ireland as well. Um, You also get lots of Irish doctors writing to Stopes for advice um, on contraception in this period as well. And as you mentioned, the woman um, from Limerick writing to Stopes as well, Miles, like there's dozens of men and women writing to her um, in this period, trying to get information about contraception because it's just not available to them in Ireland at the time. Now, in 1935, you have the Criminal Law Amendment Act coming into force, and that is what actually bans the importation of contraceptive devices into Ireland. Did that, in effect, just codify you know, laws on contraception or practice, best practice or worst practice or whatever you want to call it, on contraception? Or was it more impactful than that? Yeah, exactly. So really, the 1935 Act, um, as you said, it bans the import and sale of contraceptives. And I suppose that combined with the 1929 Censorship of Publications Act means that you can't get access to contraception in Ireland um, and you can't get access to any information on contraception either. And what you see after that 1935 legislation is that there is a series of court cases in Ireland um, where people who were found to be guilty of importing or selling contraception um, are dealt with in quite a heavy manner and particularly people who are of non-Irish or um, non-Christian background, um, such as Jewish grocers and chemists, um, who appear to have been particularly targeted by the legislation as well. So there was an element of anti-Semitism involved in all of this? Yeah, certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, just to give you an example of one case, there was a man called Ivor Cron, who was a Jewish grocer in Dublin, and in 1936 he was summoned before the courts um, on eight counts under the Criminal Law Amendment Act um, for unlawfully keeping contraceptives for sale, for selling them and for importing them. And basically what happened was a 16-year-old boy was arrested in connection with another offence and he was found to have contraceptives on his person and then was asked, well, where did you get these? And basically then it was traced back to Ivor Cron's shop. Then in the actual court case, the judge at the time, um, Judge Little, really highlighted Cron's Jewish identity. Um, In his conviction speech, he said that the defendant clearly belonged to a community among whom the Old Testament was revered. And Cron was given a really heavy sentence. Um, He got £200 in fines, um, as well as six months imprisonment with hard labour. And there was an appeal then from Cron later on in 1936, which resulted in the fine being reduced um, to £100, but the prison sentence was was left to stand. And there's quite a number of these types of cases happening in the 30s. And really, I think they have a big effect in deterring individuals um, from engaging with this with this trade and contraceptives. Now, the book draws on oral history interviews that you conducted, not just with activists, but also with with ordinary people. How did you get people to open up about their experiences? Yeah, so I think for a history project like this, um, you can't really understand people's personal experiences in relation to family planning and contraception unless you go and actually speak to them and interview them about their experiences. So basically what I did was I interviewed 103 men and women who were born in Ireland before 1955 um, and I recruited them through going to 
older people's community groups around Ireland and giving a talk about my research and then inviting people to sign up for a one-to-one interview with me if they were interested in, in talking about their experiences. And what I found was that people were, were very open, actually, in talking about this topic. Um, I think it's probably in part due to the fact that, you know, with the recent referendums in Ireland in 2015 um, on marriage equality and obviously the repeal the eighth referendum in 2018, and that combined with the recent discussions in the media around mother and baby homes, I think people are, there's a lot more kind of discussion of these issues in the public arena. So yeah, people were actually quite comfortable um, talking about all of this. And I was very grateful, you know, that people were so open about their experiences. Now, one of the things that you highlight is the role played by women's magazines. If we, you know, you come up to the to the 1960s, for example, uh, yeah. and they are influential in, in getting across the message and getting information out about contraception, aren't they? Yeah, they're really crucial at the time um, because you have to bear in mind in the, you know, the period that I'm looking at, um, there was very little in the way of sex education in Ireland. Um, It was very hard, obviously, with the kind of censorship laws um, to find out any information about contraception. So women's magazines were crucial, particularly Woman's Way magazine from the 60s. You know, there's lots of discussion in articles in that magazine around, you know, things like the pill. You've also got journalists like Monica McEnroy are very active in kind of, you know, generating debate really around this issue. But also as well as that, you've got um, problem pages um, to these magazines and they're actually a really useful source of information for women um, and finding out about just basic information about um, fertility, contraception, um, pregnancy and childbirth. But then I suppose on the other side of that coin would be agony ants like Angela McNamara, who would have been, I would have thought, quite influential in prolonging the status quo. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think Angela McNamara, she's a complex figure. Um, On one hand, I think the advice she was given was actually quite in line with with church teachings. You know, she was never actively kind of advocating use of artificial contraception. But I think on the other hand, she was quite an important figure in generating debate around these issues and, you know, in giving talks to secondary schools about sex education. So I think she she did recognise the importance of giving people um, that basic information. And during all this period, how conservative and how influential in that conservatism would the medical profession have been? Yeah, so the medical profession was pretty conservative in general, I would say at the time. It wasn't really an issue that they wanted to get involved in. And I suppose their hands were tied as well, Miles, in terms of the law at the time and in terms of what kind of advice they could um, give women about contraception. So one way that women could get around the law in relation to contraception from the early 60s, you could get the pill in Ireland as a cycle regulator. But that basically meant that you had to go to a doctor and say that, you know, you had, you know, menstrual irregularities or irregular periods or really painful periods. And then the doctor might give you the pill for that reason. Um, So I think there was that kind of knowledge of how you could get the pill and what doctors would prescribe the pill was circulated amongst women as well. One of the things you also highlight was the uh, b- b- priests who were more sympathetic. Why was that even an issue? I'm curious about that. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. So I suppose in, in 1968, you've got um, Humanae Vitae, the uh, papal encyclical comes out. And basically in the 60s, prior to that, um, there was an expectation that the church might be a bit more, you know, might change its stance in relation to contraception and be a bit more lenient towards it. Um, but really, Humanae Vitae is a disappointment to a lot of Catholics across the world because it kind of reinforces the church's stance on contraception. And then, you know, you do see some priests who really struggle with this, I guess. And one example would be Father James Good, um, who was a priest in Cork. um, And he was also a lecturer in in medical ethics um, at UCC. And as soon as Humanae Vitae came out, he actually kind of came out in opposition to it and kind of said, you know, that it was just not really you know, viable um, that people kind of continue to use the rhythm method. He was just a, a lot more kind of progressive, I suppose, in, in his views and sympathetic to women's experiences. So he kind of became known in Cork as someone who was a bit more sympathetic on this issue. And I remember one of my interviewees talked about his church being packed because he was known to be sympathetic. And basically, as a result of his outspoken views and the fact that he was known to be given women um, who were using birth control, absolution and confession, um, he was called before the bishop, um, Lucy in Cork, and was uh, suspended from his priestly duties and then later moved um, to Kenya in 1975 to work as a missionary. So, yeah, there, the kind of information on priests like like good was spread amongst women as well, um, because I think the confession box was often a place where priests were reinforcing this idea that, you know, contraception was wrong and that women were expected um, to have as many children as they could. So the priests that were sympathetic were were quite rare, I guess. And I suppose just as uh, Father James Good was supposed to reinforce the message of someone like Bishop Lucy, somebody else who would have been preaching that same message would have been Archbishop McQuaid, John Charles McQuaid in Dublin, who would have been ultra supportive of uh, Humanae Vitae. You've been to the Dublin Diocesan Archive, you've seen correspondence that uh, McQuaid would have received on this subject. Was it mostly pats on the back or was there some criticism of his stance? Yeah, I, I think it's important to to recognise here that a lot of people um, were very much supportive of the church's stance at the time and, and agreed with it. So, yeah, there's lots of correspondence in the Dublin Diocesan Archive um, of people writing to McQuaid saying, you know, well done, um, because McQuaid came out with, you know, a series of pastorals in relation to this issue after Humana Vitae. But there were also some letters from um, men and women who disagreed with McQuaid's stance on the issue. Um, You know, I came across one letter of a woman um, who was planning to get married and she just wrote to McQuaid saying, I don't understand why you have to be, you know, so outspoken and strict on this issue. So there, there was some dissension. Not everyone agreed with this. I think, though, for priests who did disagree with this and who were being outspoken about it, um, there definitely were consequences. Now, the contraceptive train episode of 1971 obviously was important, would be seen as important in activism in relation to this issue. There's, a, there's also there's a delightfully farcical element, I suppose, to that. There's a performance element to that. How important was that? How crucial was that in, in deflating the controversy? Yeah, I think the contraceptive train was was really a really important moment. Um, when you think about the publicity it generated and 
a lot of people I interviewed really remembered that moment. And I, I suppose 1971, when that event happens, is also important in terms of the kind of legal movement on this issue. Um, you know, you've uh, got Mary Robinson trying to get bills passed through the Senate on the issue. But you've also got the establishment of family planning clinics around this time as well. So I think it's it's really, really important as a kind of cultural moment because I suppose it's the first time that there's this big protest around the issue um, and then I suppose the farcical element of it as you mentioned uh, you know this group of women and I think Nell McCrafty's memoirs are amazing in, mm. in discussing this because um, you know she talks about them going into this chemist shop in, in Belfast and you know a lot of the women in the group had never even seen contraceptives before um, a lot of them didn't realize you needed you know a prescription for the pill and things like that and then I suppose it, it kind of highlights the fear that they felt as well on the train back, the consequences that this action could have, the fear that they might be arrested, the fear that they might lose their jobs, the fear of, you know, what would their mothers say about it? So I think it's it's a really important moment um, and the publicity it generates is really crucial in opening up the debate on the issue. Now, you also looked at a movement which uh, began subsequent to the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, and that was Irish Women United. Tell us about that. Yeah, Irish Women United. Um, there's, I suppose, less awareness of um, some of their activities, but they were a really important feminist group, which were founded in 1975. And they're a bit different to the Irish Women's Liberation Movement in that they're predominantly a group of women who are involved in socialist and radical politics. And they're also kind of a younger age group. A lot of them would have been kind of early 20s, that kind of age. Um, and there's also a significant element of lesbian women um, in the group as well. And I think, you know, they undertake a lot more kind of direct action um, campaigns around the contraception issue. So they set up something called the Contraception Action Programme in spring 1976. And really, that's the campaign specifically for the legalisation of contraception. And the Contraception Action Programme is really important because it highlights the class um, and geographic uh, disparities in terms of access to contraception, but also the kind of health concerns around contraception. The fact that, you know, a lot of women in Ireland were um, getting the pill from their doctors because that was the only kind of option available to them to get the pill as a cycle regulator. So they're really important. And some of their activities as well are really imaginative for the time. You know, they, they set up a caravan which sold condoms and distributed leaflets in places such as like Ballymun or Rahoon in Galway and circulated information about sympathetic doctors. But they also set up a shop as well in Dublin um, in 1978 called Contraceptives Unlimited. And that sold um, non-medical contraceptives such as condoms, jellies, creams and caps. So it, it's really kind of trying to challenge the law in quite creative ways. Now, as we know, or certainly as anybody who lived through that period knows, social change in Ireland did not come through Dáil and it did not come through Irish politicians or Irish politics. It came from our EEC membership. It also came through the courts. Uh, tell me about the McGee case and how crucial that was. Yeah, so the McGee case is really important. I suppose it kind of highlights the issues that ordinary women in Ireland were experiencing at the time. Um, you know, May McGee, and her husband um, had been told by the doctor that if she had any more children, she could potentially die. 
So she takes this case after, you know, ordering spermicidal uh, jelly and it being, you know, taken by by customs. Um, so I think the McGee case is really crucial there because it just highlights um, the real kind of problems that women were experiencing um, in the 70s in Ireland. And, you know, the I suppose the power that lay in the hands of ordinary Irish women as well. Now, you also interviewed a lot of people involved in family planning clinics. How did they challenge the law? What kind of risks did they take? People involved in the family planning clinics were really crucial in, I suppose, providing um, contraception on the ground to people. And they took significant risks. So, for example, I interviewed some members of the Galway Family Planning Clinic, which was set up in 1977. And some of the people involved with that, you know, they would go over um, to England to get contraception and then fly back on the plane, you know, hiding it in their suitcases and these kinds of things. So they were taking really significant risks. But also, I think the personal and career risks of, you know, being seen to be involved in this movement at the time as well um, is really important to remember um, because it was hugely controversial but also, I suppose, the risk from kind of the local communities at the time as well. Um, you know, if you take the Cork Family Planning Clinic, um, that was set up in 1974 by Dr. Edgar Ritchie. And, you know, a letter was read out in all of the masses um, in the diocese that year from Cornelius Lucy, the Bishop of Cork and Ross, you know, telling them about the clinic and that this was really wrong, you know. So there, there was a kind of like quite a lot of backlash, I think, for people who have been seen to be involved in this movement. Now, the legislative outcome of the McGee case comes in, um, well, quite a few years afterwards, in 1979, when Jack Lynch, I would say with a certain amount of elan, hands the nettle over to Charles Hawhey. And you have the Planning Act, Family Planning Act of 1979, which he, of course, famously described as an Irish solution to an Irish problem. But it wasn't much of a solution to any problems, really, was it? No, definitely not. And, you know, the same problems in terms of access really remain. Um, So like the 1979 Act was very restrictive um, because of its stipulation that contraception could only be obtained for bona fide family planning purposes. So that was obviously widely interpreted as meaning that only married couples could access it. And also, I mean, things like condoms, for example, you couldn't get them in, you know, a shop or in a chemist or in a petrol station like you can today. You you know, you needed a prescription for condoms at this point as well. And there was also an issue then with chemists and with doctors as well, that some chemists wouldn't actually dispense contraception. Some doctors wouldn't prescribe contraception. So particularly in rural areas, so some parts of Ireland, you know, for example, in Kerry, it was reported in the 80s that only nine out of 40 chemists actually stocked non-medical contraceptives like condoms at the time. Um, so those kind of challenges uh, that people experienced in terms of access still remained um, from the introduction of this act. And what kind of a difference did uh, Barry Desmond, the Labour Party Minister for Health, what did his amending legislation in the mid 80s, what impact did that have? Yeah, I think that had a big impact um, in 1985, the amendment to the Act. Um, so basically that meant that condoms could be um, sold in licensed premises, so places like chemists or family planning clinics. The only problem with that, though, was that uh, there was still kind of a sense that you had to be married to access them. Um, there was still a sense that you had to be, that legally you had to be over 18. So, for example, for young people, um, there was no real way of getting access to contraception. 
Which, of course, prompts the question, how important was the AIDS crisis in making condoms more widely available? And is that what eventually forces the hand of legislators? Yeah, I think the AIDS crisis is crucial in all of this. Um, But I suppose what I'd argue really is that it's the kind of activism that takes place in the late 80s and early 90s um, that's most important. Um, So, you know, you've got the condom counter, which was set up by the IFPA youth group um, in the Virgin Megastore in Dublin in February 1988. And that's basically trying to kind of challenge the law around where contraceptives could be sold. So I think that's a really important action. And again, it generates huge media attention around the issue. Um, But you've also got a short direct action campaign called Condom Sense in 1992, where activists installed condom vending machines in pubs and nightclubs around Ireland. And really, they're kind of trying to argue that condoms were essential for public health during the AIDS crisis. Um, So I think it is very important, but I think it's the activism that really, you know, highlights the issue. Well, the book is called Contraception and Modern Ireland, A Social History. It's published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, It is obviously available in print, but it's also available. This is great. It's available uh, to be read for free online as a PDF on the uh, Cambridge University Press website. Thanks to help from the Wellcome Trust who funded the research uh, project. Uh, The author is my guest, Dr. Laura Kelly. Laura, many thanks indeed for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Miles.